Hello, this is Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry, a series of conversations at the intersection of religious faith and public life. I'm your host, Chris Henry, and since this is our very first episode, I want to say a few words about the podcast before I introduce our first guest. In my role as senior pastor of Second Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis, I find myself often in many discussions about faith that oscillate between frustration and hope. Many of us lament the ways in which something so precious to us is being weaponized to further the polarization of our politics or fight the culture wars. We don't hear our convictions reflected in the loudest or most prominent voices that claim to speak for people of faith. Many have left religious communities altogether as a result of this sense of spiritual homelessness. And yet, there is also this stubborn hope that another path exists, another way is possible. There is, I think, a sense that people of faith must speak the truth in love and speak it in public. There's a longing for meaningful dialogue that honors difference while seeking common ground and pursuing common good. There is a hunger for faithful discourse. So it will be my hope to lift up voices and conversations that can guide us toward more fruitful and faithful relationships and communities to lean toward the light and look for signs of life all around us. One more thing. I am a pastor and I am also a father. Our two sons are 10 and six years old. As a parent, my deepest wish is that our children will find their way toward lives of meaning and purpose, and that the world they inherit will be a place worthy of their gifts. So this podcast is dedicated to Sam and Ben, and to every other child whose future depends on our faithful stewardship of the present. Let's get started. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome my colleague and friend, Reverend Gracie Payne, as our guest. Gracie is an ordained Presbyterian pastor who serves as the Director of Young Adult Engagement at Second Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis. She is a graduate of Indiana University and Princeton Theological Seminary and a pastor whose extraordinary gifts as a leader in the church I've been fortunate to witness firsthand over the last four years here in Indianapolis. Gracie. Welcome to Faithful Discourse. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'd love to hear a bit about your current ministry of engaging young adults in the church. Tell us a bit about what shape that ministry takes. Yeah, I work with young adults, as you've said, which I think sociologists have really proven is a label that's enigmatic. We Mm -hmm. cannot uh, pin it down. So we Mm -hmm. define it as those 18 to 39, but we don't card anyone who wants to participate (laughs) because ultimately young adulthood, I think, is defined more by a sense of discovery, establishment, um, and increasing commitments. Uh, What does it mean to shape a meaningful life Um, than it is by what birthday you've celebrated? So I pastor this group by walking alongside them and pointing to God through the fog um, Mm. and the transitions of their lives, as well as programmatically supporting the ministry and cultivating ways for them to convene, to connect, opportunities for them to theologically reflect on the meaning that we want for all people and and to serve. Mm -hmm. 
I think um, many of us who are either leaders in the church or care deeply about the church uh, hear this constant string of statistics and stories about the decline in participation and even belief among emerging generations. I wonder what you sense as some of the causes of this decline and perhaps some effective ways that congregations and faith communities can respond to it. What a question. The cause of the decline, I think, is in part, and I'll speak for my own people, on us, the church. um, I think we've sown a lot of beliefs that now are bearing rotten fruit. Much smarter people than I have written about the moralistic therapeutic deism that's been taught, the belief that there's this God that set things in motion and just stepped back and isn't intimately involved. And that's not a God worth hitching our lives to. And so I think there's been skepticism and and thus um, people have walked away because, like I said, not worth hitching your life to. But I also think that then there's the cost of um, atheism's belief in, in nothing and that there's nothing meaningful beyond it. And so there's a hunger for transcendence um, that that might be the antidote to this pervasive cynicism, both on the side of atheism and on the side of the religious uh, folks that I'm around most regularly. And I think that people are aware that there's more, whether mm-hmm. they p- mm-hmm. put themselves in one camp or the other. Either way, there's a sense that the world is haunted yeah. Yeah. and they're hungry for meaning and connection and um, and a sense of something greater. And so you see it young people looking for it everywhere you can. I, I sometimes joke that I can tell when a young adult is discipled by TikTok. Hmm. Um, hmm. And, and that can look like a lot of different things. It can look like Christian nationalism, and it, and it can look like a, a, a grasping for yeah. um, ways to connect to something beyond themselves, whether that's through tarot cards or crystals. Mm-hmm. or right. and, and I don't, none of that am I seeking to diminish or devalue. I just see it as, yeah, that's our human hunger and longing for something more. And so whereas the church stepped in to uh, provide those opportunities to to point to God through the fog, to affirm that hunger Mm. um, and say say yes to it rather than uh, judging people for it. I think one of the things your ministry is teaching me is that our impulse to correct tactics or to design strategies around attraction or to to design programs that are bigger and better or sort of more more sort of sophisticated at a tactical or practical level is really not the answer. Um, your point, you're pointing to transcendence. You're pointing to the need for meaning and purpose that really may take the shape of the ancient traditions of the church, the kind of spiritual disciplines that have shaped faith for generations and millennia, um, or um, in some cases, sort of more um, uh, modern or contemporary expressions of faith that um, emerging generations, young adults broadly defined, are as diverse within their own cohort as any other group of people. And I think sometimes the church has had sort of this impulse to, well, if we design the right program or use the right technology or hire the right person, but are not thinking about kind of that deeper hunger that exists. Um, yeah, sometimes the programs distract us from listening to the people, and God speaks through the people, yes, right, and right. Uh, through their hungers and their longings. And so if, we, uh, if we're if we so busy building something, um, that we often miss the opportunity yeah. to actually serve right. the ways that the Spirit's leading us. Right, right. And I also think there is this sometimes this assumption that um, our, our young adult 
cohort is the group of people who most want to be on their own, um, mm, sort of let's yeah. do things only for the young adults. And I think I am learning from your ministry that integration into a broader community that includes all generations, um, you're uh, bringing uh, young adults into volunteer for children's ministry, to work with older adults, um, the importance of building a community across generations that each generation then benefits from their both participation in, they receive something from, but also feel like they're able to contribute their unique gifts. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that we all have been talking about in the church and beyond is rising isolation. And yes. and part of that is this intergenerational silo or this generational siloing, rather. Part of this is the generational siloing. And that has further isolated us. And um, and people need the, the riches and the resources of learning from one another. And that's one of the unique things about church that I still am so thankful for is the way that it puts people in proximity to those who are who are different than them and um and in age and background and um and then it also there's such power I witness it in the halls on a Sunday morning mm-hmm. right in having a young person be noticed yes. by someone from a different generation and um and Springtide research um churchy uh, group, <laughs> they they write about that need for pe- young people to be noticed, named, and known. Mm. And there's just nothing like seeing an older adult yes. look at one of your sons and yes. and lean down and call him by his name, right? Yeah, and, and they're not going to get that on social media, which is where a lot of us are looking right. to be noticed, right? right? right. Um, my generation included. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one of the um, sort of germs of an idea behind um, launching this podcast is my growing concern about the the lack of voices in the public square that give expression to a faith that I recognize and celebrate in myself and in the community that I serve. Um, I was recently listening to a conversation with a faith leader in another denomination, um, and he was describing his concern that we are losing a generation, he says, be, not because they they are secularists, not because folks in their 20s and 30s are themselves secularists, but because they look at the church and believe that deep down we are. Um, or in other words, there is this assumption, um, perhaps even a justified cynicism, uh, that churches and especially prominent church leaders have sold their spiritual core uh, for political influence or for secular power or uh, for sort of that that social standing. Uh, do you see this in your work, sort of a response to the secularization of the church or the political captivity of the church? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's part of what I find invigorating about the work I get to do is that I think these younger generations are holding the church accountable and saying, this is never what you were created for. This isn't the Jesus that I read about in scripture. Um, And that is a gift. Again, going back to the the need for intergenerational community, we all have blind spots, spots Mm -hmm. that we can't recognize as failures in the faith and and in our lives and our ethics. And we need to hear from different people with different backgrounds Mm -hmm. about so that we can hold one another accountable to a more integrated and whole witness. Um, And I think that you see that with young adults there. Um, I've especially felt that as we've come out of um, the early you know, years of the pandemic mm-hmm. has been the return of these young adults to community. Mm-hmm. I think when we all felt isolated by sheltering in place and then 
return um, to community, they started to say, well, I guess the church is where I should be able to find friends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. and so they started showing up. And and a lot of it was, well, you all have been complicit in X. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't coming. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I'm here. And you got to fix this. Yeah. And and slowly seeing their you become a we mm-hmm. <laughs> has yes. been one of the great gifts yes. is we have to address this. Yes. We have to have a more integrated witness. And uh, that's, I think that's, again, one of the ways that we listen to the call of God through various voices and perspectives. Right, right. I, I've been thinking a lot um, in recent months about um, our uh, theological tradition, the reform tradition, and how one of the great gifts that we have to offer this moment is a super strong awareness of our own brokenness and an acknowledgement of that, that every time we gather in worship, we say, yeah. we messed it up again, <laughs> we failed you again. Um, so we we enter worship sort of on the common ground of our own brokenness before a holy God. And there does seem to me to be that that level of accountability um, I love that language of the you becoming a we, that by the time you get through a worship service in our tradition, hopefully that has happened. That's part of what worship does is sort of draw us together first on the level ground of our brokenness and then before the cross, the gift of grace um, and the freedom to start all over again and try to do it better this time. Um, I wonder in a time when uh, institutions have lost trust um, for a lot of really good reasons and because of their own, as you say, complicity in, in broken systems and sometimes even their benefit from those from those broken systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if there are ways for us to regain the trust that has been lost. And if so, do you have like suggestions or ideas or perhaps uh, stories of testimony and witness to places. Um, you're so good at collecting the stories of, of folks whose journeys you've been a part of. Are there ways that you have seen that trust rebuild or that community woven back together? Yeah, well, I, I just want to go back a bit to what you were saying about yeah. confession, because I, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the great things that we offer in the Reformed tradition is um, is this recognition of our own depravity, to use mm-hmm. yes, <laughs> the theological yes. word. And and it's, it's an opportunity that we say out loud that, yeah, this is broken. I'm broken. And I don't think we do it. It's not virtue signaling, you know, and it's it's yeah. also not this woe is me, I'm canceled. Mm-hmm. It's not performative. Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of this, I keep falling short and I need grace. Um, and I think that's a wild and beautiful thing um, that in our faith, we, we actually believe that God cares and that God will be gracious to us. And so I find that to be very freeing for mm-hmm. many young adults is the way that it's like, oh, I, I'm not perfect, mm-hmm. um, but God can change me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a public act uh, that we do together. So it's yeah. it's also recognizes systemic sin, mm-hmm. right? It's the ways that not only am I responsible for my own actions that are, you know, feeble and and failing at times, but also I'm a part of of systems bigger than me, yes. and uh, that that are harmful. Yeah. Like you've said, I, I think about the work that scientists are doing right now with AI, and I guess that'd be a mm. different conversation no, altogether. Yeah. But um, where they're they're getting together daily to try to break various, you know, technology to see when it will become racist or xenophobic Mm -hmm. or sexist. And um, they know it's in there, Mm -hmm. in these systems, because it's in us. And I think the young adults that I work with know that. um, And and no matter where they may sit on any political issue, they know that disdain for another 
is in them mm-hmm. and in us. Mm-hmm. And it's it constrains the way we move through the world. I think about that great mm-hmm. uh, episode back in the day of The Good Place mm-hmm. with yes. the tomatoes. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. Yes. Um, it's, it's worth a watch, but it, it gives a good picture of systemic sin. You go to buy a tomato and you are making a public and political <laughs> choice, yeah. right? Yeah. And and often participating in things you don't want to participate yeah. in. And and so there's there's something very freeing in the Reformed faith about, hey, I'm no matter what I do, I'm going to fall short. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is an opportunity for me to put my body in places that can help create more wholeness, mm-hmm. more peace in the world. Um, and so for me, it's the the peacemaking efforts that I see young people doing. Um, And I I think like it used to feel like peacemaking was some um, something we did out there. And now it's it's in people's homes. It's happening. It's, you know, all the time. I hear more and more as a pastor about these small peacemaking efforts that people are doing. I I don't know if it's if that's even the language they would wrap around it Mm -hmm. because it feels so ordinary to them. Um, But you know, I think about the college age individual I sat with for lunch recently who said to me, I don't agree with you on that, but mm. I still trust you. Uh, wow. wow. <laughs> and I thought, wow. Mm. And it was a it was a pretty major topic mm. of mm. discussion. And I and I was like, that's incredible that we can still have yes. trust and respect yes. between one another. Or um Powerful. a young adult who leaned over after someone had shared something in a larger setting that they disagreed with. And they they at first kind of jeered the person in my ear and then a moment later said, I repent. Hmm. Theological language, right? Yes. I repent. Um, wow. They're here and they're trying yes. to grow. Wow. And so the, the way that going back to confession, it makes us more gracious people or right. it ought to. Yeah. Because yeah. we first say, I'm going to fall short. We are going yes. to fall short. That yes. you becoming a we, um, it's harder to point a finger yes. when you are starting to recognize the ways you're desperate yes. for someone not to point a finger at you. <laughs> right. And it only happens, I think, in communities of depth, right, where um, until you have that level of trust, until mm-hmm. you have that level of relationship, the ability to transcend the difference that might you know, cause an immediate uh, tension or an immediate conflict. Um, I had a, a a mentor in college who used to say, you don't have community until you've had conflict hmm. and reconciliation. And I think sometimes in a lot of the communities that we're a part of, we sort of skate the surface, mm-hmm. um, either out of a, a, a fear to go into the deep places where that difference might emerge, yeah. or frankly, sometimes just a fatigue and a weariness of, I, I can't do this again. I can't go into places of pain or um, I don't, I remember uh, I remember a member of, a, of the congregation I served in Atlanta who was asked to serve on our board of elders on our session. And he said, um, I really do feel like I have the gifts to do that, but this church is perfect to me right now. And I know <laughs> if I join the leadership team, I will see how wrong I am to think that this yeah. church is perfect. Um, but there is a sense in which you don't have the level of relationship either with an institution or certainly with a, a community, a group of people, um, until you've been able to kind of confront those places where difference um, exists. Yeah. What is it that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about the most, the greatest enemy to a community is the one who has an idealized the image? Ideal. Yes, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, of the community yeah. in mind, and yeah. Um, yeah, it's the ones who are in the mess doing it who are, and I and I think that's where going back to places of depth. I mm-hmm. I really do believe 
that having a central mission and vision, in our case, faith in Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, it makes us brave enough to be vulnerable uh, because we, again, don't, we know it doesn't depend just on us um, and that these people are called to be bound up with me and and with all of us by Christ. And, and so that, sustains the capacity to be vulnerable. And we're trying to embody the way of Jesus, which is the way of vulnerability, (laughs) to come towards people, to go across the division. And so my hope and my work always is to see people more and more develop into the shape of Christ, including myself, because I fall short maybe the most. (laughs) Well, I I think about there are two images of Scripture that have really been speaking to me um, lately. One is um, uh, Jesus' image of the log in our own eye and the speck in our neighbor's eye, and we're embarking on a journey at Second Church through Isaiah 58, and his language is the pointing of the finger. If you remove the pointing of the finger, which I think is just another way of saying noticing the speck in your neighbor's eye and not the log in your mm-hmm. own eye. Um, and the other is is Jesus' instruction that uh, when we are making a sacrifice or an offering before God, if we remember that we have something, some, some conflict with a neighbor, we should leave worship and go find that neighbor and be <laughs> reconciled before coming to worship. Um, seems like uh, at a at a cultural level, at a um, at a systemic level, we could we could all use um, living into that practice of perhaps removing ourselves from uh, our pious rituals long enough to be reconciled with the people who we have conflict with. Um, I, I want to go to your language of of disdain because. Um, <laughs> I think seeing seeing disdain for another as in and of itself a sin, right? Mm. As in and of itself um, a testament to our own brokenness. Perhaps that is the log in our eye that mm. we could be. You know, I think it was Fred Craddock who said, "You can you can make an A and a you can make an A in Bible and still fail Christianity." <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> that sometimes it's our relationships with our uh, with with folks we might be in conflict or or disagreement with that exposes our own sinfulness. But mm-hmm. I think that's so hard to see when you know how right you are, um, when, when, when the disagreement is profound. Um, so this language of disdain, I think if, if I were to sort of diagnose our cultural ailment, I think disdain would be high on the list. Yeah. yeah. And, cynicism, and cynicism, I would put up there as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. That tomorrow will be the same as today. Mm-hmm. I think that's what our politics has become a bit of a, a message um, that has become the message in our politics has been that tomorrow will be the same as today. Yes, if and not worse. Yeah, if not worse. Yeah. 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 It's sort of a, a an enticement to disengage, right? I think that's one of the, you know, when, when you hear about, uh, and sometimes it's pinned to young adults, but I think it's far more pervasive than that, just a sense of apathy mm-hmm. um, in the choices of candidates we have or in the, the 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 battles we've been fighting for so long with no resolution or reconciliation. I think there is this just sense of, um, yeah, sort of a, a hopelessness about the future, um, which again is a beautiful place for faith uh, to, to stand in the gate and say, no, there is a better way. There is a different path. Yeah, and I mean, even to go back to our language of the structure of Reformed worship, confession is often 
followed by passing of the peace, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it is this mm-hmm. uh, moving toward the neighbor. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I would love to see on a Sunday morning someone use passing of the peace to go find the person they're fighting with and yeah. ask for forgiveness, yes. right? Yes. And uh, and that would overcome the disdain and I think some of the cynicism. And 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 I I don't see that in mm-hmm. our political landscape. Um, I wish I had had hopeful stories there right now, but none come to mind. The uh, uh, in my former congregation, we had a, a worship service for our all who had been ordained elders at some point in their lives. We call it the College of Elders, and in that worship service, we use this beautiful liturgy from um, the Church of Scotland from the Iona community. And um, the language is something like, before God and all who are gathered with me in worship, I confess my brokenness, I admit my sin. And then as a community, we offered words of forgiveness to each other. Mm. So it was, you know, before God and these witnesses, we release you from those sins. And after the service, this was an evening service, and then we shared communion. And after the service, I encountered two of the members of the congregation who were in tears outside of the service having this conversation. And I just sort of stood back and allowed them to have their conversation. And then when one of them walked over to me, I said, is everything okay? What what was going on there? And the member said, this this other member and I had not spoken to each other since a conflict we had on a mission trip in Mexico 12 years earlier. And tonight in this gathering, you know, he said we, we would see each other in worship regularly. We, you know, even were, you know, on committees together, did things together, but we just, we've lived this sort of separate lives in the same congregation for 12 years. And he said, whatever it was, there was something about that liturgy of before God and these fellow worshipers, I confess my brokenness before God and these fellow worshipers, um, you know, be, be forgiven and set free that brought us at the same time in the same way um, back into relationship with each other. So it, it does happen. Um, yeah. and, and sometimes it takes uh, it takes the conviction in, in transcendent reality, right, that, that yeah. there is a God who frees us, that we are not ultimately capable of freeing ourselves or each other from mm-hmm. these prisons that we create, but there is a God who promises to free us. Yeah. I think about, I'll be a little self-disclosing, but I, th- I think about it in a previous congregation I served, I had wronged a member, mm-hmm. um, an elder, and um, and we were working through that in our relationship. And one day I came up for communion, and it was it was by intention where we come forward to tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. And, and he was holding the bread, and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, Gracie, for you alone, mm-hmm. Christ would have died, mm-hmm. wow. and it is his body that is broken for you. Wow. Wow. And we both had tears in our mm-hmm. eyes. Mm-hmm. And I knew right then that that was that was the transcendent power of God making forgiveness right. possible, you know, and making reconciliation possible. Um, yeah. So, so the church, at, the church at her best. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> provides and, those opportunities. And so, if those, if those moments are possible um, and happen, um, then who is to prevent, um, you know, God from doing that? Uh, in in broader, bigger, bolder ways, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately, I think therein lies our hope. Right therein lies um, the antidote to cynicism: is that mm-hmm. there is there is healing, there is forgiveness, there is the possibility of of uh, uh, reconciliation. Yeah. Well, you've you've sort of um, anticipated a, a question that I was going to to ask, and I think we've 
we've kind of gone there, but I, I've thought a lot about the practices of our faith or mm. spiritual disciplines. And um, I think sometimes we um, overestimate um, the resistance that there is <laughs> to the practices and spiritual disciplines. You know, you've described some what might be described as faith practices or yeah. disciplines outside of Christian tradition. Um, do you see... Um, do you see a recovery of or a returning to those sort of basic practices of prayer, worship, spiritual disciplines, reading scripture in community um, as sort of a, a, a rhythm of life that might be instructive and formative in the life of young people? I've definitely seen a recovery of spiritual practices, and people are in young adulthood, right, building lives. They're building their mm, lives, yeah. and they're looking for trellises on which to grow. And the faith provides these beautiful gifts, like intentional community. Um, so people want to be in um, rhythms of regular connection with their peers and uh, so, uh, gathering around Scripture and, quite frankly, around food, yes. um, which is also <laughs> scriptural. Always. Yes, um, yes, that's right. <laughs> they want to break bread together, yes. and uh, and so that hunger is there, and and the church easily can satiate that by connecting people with other sojourners. And then uh, we facilitate a number of retreats, and that's because Sabbath is something that people are longing to recover, and our frenetic age doesn't facilitate that easily. And the beautiful thing, too, I think, in the Christian faith is that Sabbath isn't an act of self-care in the sense mm -hmm. of, like, something mm -hmm. unattainable to all. It in itself is a revolutionary act of, of stopping yes. and also trying to figure out how others around you mm can be supported in their stopping as well. So I think anytime that we have an opportunity to slow down, we're invited um, in our tradition to to ask who can't slow down right mm -hmm. now and why yes, and, yes. and get curious about that. And I see that um, young people really naming that and, um, and finding ways to actively uh, look to the interest of their neighbor uh, to address those injustices, yes. um, which yes. is, is such a... a beautiful reflection of the Old Testament's teachings. And the other um, piece yeah. is service. Mm. People are really hungry for lives of meaning. Does does what I do matter? Mm -hmm. um, and not just does it matter to me, um, though we live in such a sometimes navel-gazing age, um, does it matter to others? Yeah. And and how can I have a, an impact? Yes. And so I think there's a real spirit of public service. I don't think we hear that right. <laughs> necessarily right. uh, talked about in the public square, but there is um, a recovery happening, yeah. I believe, of yeah. that. And that makes me very hopeful yes. uh, that tomorrow will be different yes. than today. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I think I think the practice of Sabbath and the practice of service, um, and you connect those so beautifully that um, I find that um, in the secular world, the language of Sabbath is creeping in. Yeah. That I hear, you know, whether it's business consultants or corporate leaders using the language of Sabbath and often what is meant is a, a work stoppage, you know, close your computer and, you know, take an hour of breathing or, you know, those sorts of practices, mm -hmm. which which I would not do anything to minimize. The world minimize. is haunted, right? Yes, yeah. right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you're pointing us to 
genuine practices of Sabbath also ask us who does not have that luxury, who is not able to stop, and what can we do to create conditions where Sabbath is broadly experienced. I think that's sometimes the missing piece in what can be a hyper-individualized yes. set of practices. Um, yeah. And then service, of course, by its very nature, takes us outside of ourselves and, and our own productivity for its own sake. Yeah, yeah. And I think about um, the story of our partnership at Second with NeighborLink yes. um, and that that hunger for young people to serve. I think of one uh, young woman, an educator and mental health active advocate um, who, through familial connections, was aware of the work of NeighborLink. And NeighborLink helps seniors and individuals mm-hmm. with disabilities age in place mm-hmm. by doing low or no cost um, home repairs yes, for right. them, uh, convening people to do that. And this young woman saw the opportunity during the very beginning of the pandemic. She knew that for them, the need for their home repairs had not stopped, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't much rest for them or uh, isolating mm-hmm. in place that felt safe and easy. And so we could help still. Um, since the projects happened outside, it was possible for us mm-hmm. to don masks, mm-hmm. keep our distance, and serve still together serve, yeah. and get to meet these neighbors in Indianapolis and um, and then also meet other neighbors who were coming alongside them to serve. And that was such a gift for us. Our young adults were very involved with that. And it was such a gift for us to build and start that partnership. And it's become really central. And I think about the ways that it provided us with meaning mm-hmm. and connection mm-hmm. um, and allowed another person to take a deep breath, right? Yes. And yes. Um, and so the young woman now volunteers her time coordinating volunteers, which makes a ton of sense to me. And, mm. um, and now when we participate, we regularly get to meet our neighbors and uh, and strengthen our social fabric yes. and and the shared flourishing that your your flourishing impacts my flourishing and and it makes indie home mm-hmm. really you know mm-hmm. I've seen some young adults who've um, at second who've really found their community at second through serving right. alongside right. one another it's right. that shoulder to shoulder sense of oh now I better know my neighbors I better know my sense of purpose here. Um, And so I see it as an example of the intersection of young people's hunger for meaning and community and the way the hunger is met by living out our faith Mm -hmm. in public ways. Right. Right. Um, And I think it also exemplifies how our faith isn't... um, isn't formed in a plastic bag, to quote my (laughs) childhood pastor, Jay McCall. Um, It... Mm. God works it out in greater community, right? And so the church and disciples of Christ, we stagnate Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. we turn inward, right? right? Instead of getting curious about our neighbors and why they can't stop or what's stressing them out and and finding ways to get to know one another and serve one another. Yeah. Yeah, I would would be hard-pressed to think of a, a person who I see as living a faithful, meaningful life, who did not arrive at that life in some form by serving someone else, right? That I think so often service is the gateway to a more meaningful faith. It's where it's where sort of faith finds feet on the ground, mm-hmm. um, but also a place where uh, to the extent that vocation is discerned, I think it is often discerned less in our heads and more in our actions, Yeah, um, that we kind of live faithfully into our vocations rather than deciding what our vocations are and then 
going mm-hmm. and living mm-hmm. you know, the, vo- the vocation that our brains have told us we need to, to pursue. Yeah. Uh, I've often thought that if I were uh, ever to, to run for public office, that I would do so on only one platform, and that would be public service, that mm-hmm. um, everyone should be asked to contribute in some way to the lives of their neighbors, mm-hmm. um, not primarily because of how much wonderful service that would provide for our neighbors, though, of course, that's a wonderful benefit, but because uh, I think we we do. I remember talking with a college student um, who described, you know, we hear all the time how wonderful we are, how intelligent we are, how many gifts we have. Um, what I want to hear is, you know, what I can be useful for, you know, mm-hmm. what I can, you know, how I can give back, how I can contribute. Um, and it does seem to me like that would be a cure for a lot of what ails us is mm-hmm. just rolling up our sleeves and caring for each other in tangible ways. Yeah. And it's something we discern at any season in our life yes. over and over again. I, I was having a conversation recently with a retiree who was saying, my spouse has found this opportunity and she's loving it. And in it, she's really found a sense of purpose in the season. And I'm just sort of waiting mm. for mm. for my next yes, basically. Yeah. The wow. thing that once I say yes to it, it will provide me with greater meaning. And it, it echoed for me a conversation I'd had with one of our college students who he called me and he was considering taking a, an opportunity to serve in a campus ministry. Mm. And uh, he was like, I don't know, I've thought about this in the past, and but it, it just doesn't feel like the right time maybe, or uh, maybe I'm not cut out for this after all. And I, I said, go find out, yeah. right? You know, yeah. say yes right. and, and find out. It's uh, mm. we we roll up our sleeves and we discover. Yeah. And and I've got my own stories of times I said yes and discovered that's not where my gifts mm-hmm. are to mm-hmm. be utilized yes. or, right. or maybe I don't have those gifts. Mm. <laughs> um, but in, along the way, it's where I encountered God and got greater clarity. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's yeah. in all seasons of transition. I think we share yes. that yearning for how do I make a meaningful impact in this next chapter. Right. And the church ought to be ready to help yes. people with that's that conversation. Right. That's yeah. right. That's right. We recently looking at uh, the the letter to Timothy and this notion of, you know, do not neglect the gift that is within you, um, spoken, written to a young person, presumably. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet it is also the responsibility of the church to create places that celebrate, welcome, and use those gifts. And mm-hmm. so it has to be a both and. We we should not neglect the gifts that God has given us, and there should be places for us to find meaning in pouring those gifts out in service to others. And I think that, yeah. again, is a, um, a, a, a an opportunity that churches at their best um, can uniquely provide mm-hmm. um, that points toward transcendence, but also gives that impactful way to serve. Yeah. And, and church people can be mm. ready and responsive, right? Yes. I um, yes. I think about the, oh goodness, the pastor of Second who's often forgotten, um, Reverend, is it Hanford? Oh, Edson? yes, Edson. Yes, Edson, yes, yes, that's right. Our second pastor. <laughs> okay, yes. Uh, it's hard to get top billing when you follow <laughs> Henry Ward Beecher, but I think the... Um, the fact that he gave a sermon where he said that our communities need books. Yes. And next thing you know, he'd rallied um, some congregants and civic leaders to start our public library, yes. you know, down at Pennsylvania and Michigan. And I, I think that's that's a great witness to the ways that we are um, all collectively uh, not churches aren't just providers of service, religious goods, you know, we're, we're a community of people who are seeking to be responsive to the spirit in a way that makes our neighbors' lives um, get to 
feel the goodness right. of God as well. And um, and maybe that's through providing a public library. <laughs> it's one of my favorite Second Church stories because um, I shared that with Ibu Patel, who mm -hmm. runs Interfaith America, and um, he was asking me questions about Second Church, and and I said, well, you know, one of the institutions that Second Church founded um, uh, in the, I believe it was in the 1850s, was um, the Indianapolis Public Library. And his question to me was, what is the 2023 version of the Indianapolis Public Library that mm. you are called to create, to build, because mm -hmm. he said it is in your DNA as a church and, frankly, as a denomination. He said what what Presbyterians have always done well is build. Um, you know, I think uh, one of my favorite uh, sort of facts about Presbyterians, and I'm not <laughs> sure it's actually a fact, but at least the story that gets told is that um, when Presbyterians settled in an area, they built hospitals and schools even before they built churches. Um, and so what is that thing that uh, drawing on the best of our tradition, drawing on the best of the resources within us that we are called to build in this time? Mm -hmm. it, it probably is not a library system um, <laughs> that exists, but yes. what doesn't already exist that can be built or what has, has been torn apart that needs to be rebuilt in our community? Yeah. And, and I think that's, too, what I witness young adults looking for when they come to church is this sense of, yes, we need to hold our institutions accountable because they are and can be, you know, moral um, or immoral, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but a sense of collective vision. Um, how can we together yes. make a difference? And yeah. um, and yeah. so our building projects are not merely um, about our own self-improvement, right? It's uh, It's about having a making a tangible difference yes. in the lives of others and and young adults know that and and yeah. they look to institutions and they check institutions to yeah. see yeah. that we're living up to right. the hype <laughs> right right and we're better off for that yeah um, yeah we need it let me ask you um, a final question and um, to, to give you the the broadest possible uh, microphone here um, if you could speak to the whole church, in the broadest possible sense, the whole church, mm -hmm. um, on behalf of the young adults with whom you serve, what message would you want to give the church on behalf of those young adults? I think they would say that God is not finished with us, that God is active and alive and calling us into the future together. And that means we can't leave any generations behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and. That also means that young people are ready in many ways and capacities to lead. Yes. Right? And uh, so there's, there's a way in which we need to work more collectively, more interdependently um, to address the many challenges we face. And if we leave anyone out, we won't all get there together. Amen. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the image in Joshua of crossing the river. And I see part of the work of the pastor as standing in the middle of the river, holding the Ark of the Covenant, helping all people get across mm -hmm. the river. Mm -hmm. so, and, and I think young adults are in many ways seeking to do that, saying we've got we've to get everyone across. And that looks like, you know, addressing some of our social ills and, um, and some of our mistakes and, and genuine repentance and the practice of confession and the breaking of bread. And, um, but it, it also looks like 
identifying and and letting everyone make an impact in their own way. And uh, and I I think we underestimate young adults to our own peril. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Um, so that would be yes. That would be my hope is that people would um, would work collectively and interdependently to to lift up all the gifts um, of God's people. And I I think finally it is we're not done with the church yet. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> if I were yes. to add something, we're not done with the church yet. Um, that attitude you mentioned at the beginning of um, get, almost giving up on young adults. Um, there's this generation that's missing from the church is something I hear a lot. And and I just don't see it to be true. Yes, and, right. And I think it's a real shame when I walk into a congregation and they say that and I can see the three young adults sitting there going, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> yes, right. Um, you know, they're look to the ones who are showing up yes. and and ask how you can come alongside and partner with them in ministry to ensure that no yes. generation does get left behind yes. um, and that all who are seeking a life of purpose and meaning and know the world is haunted, that they can be heard and they can have their faith um, encouraged and cultivated and supported through the various uh, means available to us yes. in, the, in the church. So. Well, I cannot think of a uh, more hopeful message of both um, accountability and grace for the church. Um, and I can't think of a better advocate and leader for that ministry and that work than you, Gracie. So thank you so much thank you. Uh, for a thoughtful and engaging discussion. Uh, your time is appreciated. Your ministry is appreciated. And it's a gift to be your colleague. Likewise, Chris. It's such an honor. Thank, thank you, you for having me here. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we invite you to subscribe, to share with a friend. Also, we'd love to know what you'd like to hear in future episodes. I look forward to continuing the conversation on the next Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry. And until then, take care of each other. <laughs>